HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Meat and 3 is Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week on Meat and 3, we're bringing you highlights from Feast Portland, like our chat with the one and only Andrew Zimmern. I'm super excited to be here because for people who do what I do for a living, we do tons of you know, desk side chats and podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. And you circle the handful of ones in a year where you get to talk with people that you're really excited about talking with. So this is, this is awesome. We picked up on some recurring themes while talking to our impressive roster of guests, including the current state of Portland's food scene, personal identity, and believe it or not, the influence of great chef's grandmothers. Mima never touched a drop of booze in her life and now has a distillery named after her. But I grew up in her garden and just really she taught me all good things come from scratch and women can be anyone they want to be. So tune in for this week's extra special episode. Subscribe to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome David Gelb, an Emmy and Grammy-nominated producer and director, best known for his documentary work, including the award-winning Netflix series, Chef's Table. In today's episode, we're going to talk to David about the genesis of Chef's Table, why he thinks chefs make such fascinating subject matter, and we'll hear David's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We're piggybacking on the theme of episode 26, in which we talked about Julia's advocacy of great chefs. To a certain extent, in addition to her cookbooks, she dedicated her career to introducing chefs to a wider audience, helping the general public learn from and be inspired by them. Her passion for this led to the creation of her later PBS series, 
Cooking with Master Chefs, and Inside Joy's Kitchen with Master Chefs, which ran several seasons and nearly 40 episodes. The shows featured rising star chefs demonstrating their cooking, again, designed by Joya to educate and inspire. Many of these chefs went on to even greater heights, and, no surprise, several chefs featured on her programs decades ago have been recent Joya Child Award recipients. Joya had a masterful eye. Fast forward some 20-plus years, and food television has gone through an explosive transformation. There are a vast array of programs, from competition shows like Top Chef or Iron Chef, to demonstration-based lifestyle shows like The Pioneer Woman or instructional ones like Stephen Reichland's Project Fire. Enter Netflix, and one of its early original series which captured viewers' imagination. Chef's Table was created by filmmaker David Gelb. If you haven't watched Chef Tables yet, it's a series of intimate portraits of cutting-edge chefs at various career stages, and it takes you not only deep into their kitchens, but into their lives and what makes them tick. While it debuted a decade after Julia's death, I think if she were still alive, she'd have binge-watched it. It's my pleasure to welcome David Gelb to take us behind the scenes of one of my favorite shows. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for the kind words. They are sincere. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty excited to talk to you. I'm having a fan moment. So from the first time I saw this series, I was pretty wowed. From the storytelling to the mouthwatering visuals, it's a really captivating program. And especially if you're a food lover, I think it's worth the cost of Netflix subscription alone. So David, tell us more about how did the series come together in the first place? Well, the series is kind of a continuation of a um, documentary film I made um, that was released in 2012 called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And uh, in the process of making that film, you know, well, I guess uh, in starting to make the film, my goal was to make a film about the art of sushi and, um, and to use kind of all the beautiful tools of cinema, from cinematography to music, um, in a way that uh, I hadn't really seen used in food programming before. Um, I was inspired by the BBC series Planet Earth. I'd never seen uh, documentary work or nonfiction work just look so cinematic. And so I wanted to apply that to uh, the art of sushi. And in the process of doing that, I came across uh, Jiro Ono, who is uh, considered one of the greatest sushi chefs of all time. And um, we made it a more character-driven uh, film and so now Chef's Table, you know, kind of uh, taking the lead from Jiro, uses the same types of cinematic filmmaking, uh, but with diff- all uh, very character-focused, kind of telling the origin story and life's work of different iconoclast chefs uh, around the world. I see, yeah. And if, if, if you haven't seen uh, David's documentary about Jiro, it, it's, it has a very similar look and feel as Chef's Table, but kind of is a, a longer portrait than the individual Chef series, right? Uh, yes, that's correct. So, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a feature documentary, uh, and Chef's Table, is that each episode is between 40 minutes and an hour. So, if you're familiar with food programming, or especially the way it was done back in Julia's day, or back at the beginning, and even how it's done on Food Network or, or um, broadcast television or PBS now... Chef's Table has amazing production values. And what I was curious about, was that part of the original pitch you went into Netflix and said, let's experiment with like 
intellectual cutting edge chefs program and do it at three times the budget? Was that was that the pitch? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not sure what the budget on uh, you know some of the other uh, food shows are, but I, I will say that you know, again, borrowing from Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the goal was to make it look stunningly beautiful. And, um, you know, in, in doing so, it would require us to shoot with our chefs, uh, sorry, with our chefs for a longer period of time, about 10 days, and we're shooting with uh, cinema cameras. You know, these aren't um, television cameras. These are cameras designed for the big screen. Um, we're using uh, very high-end kind of prime lenses. There are no zoom lenses. It's all, you know, uh, and a prime lens means that it's at a fixed focal length, so you can't zoom in or zoom out. So we, we take our time uh, a bit more than uh, other food shows because if we need to change the, um, the amount of zoom we have on our lens, we actually have to turn off the camera, we remove the lens, replace the lens, and, you know, we kind of give it a full cinema uh, treatment in our execution. And so it takes more time, and it, it might be a little bit more expensive than um, some other shows but it's not as expensive as an episode of Game of Thrones. So uh, we have that on our side. <laughs> well, there might be blood sometimes, right? <laughs> there is some blood, yeah. Animal blood, usually. <laughs> so what? Um, that, that was a great kind of technical description of how you do it. It's made much more like a movie than a television show. But presumably you also had to tell Netflix why that would matter. What was your... What did you have in mind that maybe you took away from doing Jiro Dreams of Sushi in that, you know, because that's also a lot of effort. You could just use a zoom lens and get it done faster. Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's about perspective. And, um, you know, I wanted to portray the world of food in, in from the perspective of the chef. And so you can see the fullest, you know, kind of most magnificent beauty of, of, of what they're doing. And, um, you know, our, it, when we were making Jiro Dreams of Sushi, something that uh, myself and, 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 our, and our crew, we were telling ourselves, was to make, uh, treat the making of this film with as much um, specificity, um, diligence, and, and hard work that Jiro puts into making his own sushi. And so every element of the filmmaking had to be at the highest level that we could bring it, because that's what Jiro does with his food. And so we wanted to reflect what he does in the filmmaking itself. And, and Netflix was quite gung-ho about it because Jiro Dreams of Sushi was um, fairly frequently watched on their platform. And, and I believe that they had the data um, that said, you know, that they were able to take the risk on a food show. That's quite a bit different um, from what you'll normally see on a channel like the Food Network because we don't actually teach you how to cook <laughs> what they're making. Our show is not at all instructional. Our show is very much a, a journey of a character. And at the heart of each of our episodes, we're not, we're not just showing you what they cook, but we're showing you why they cook. And we're getting inside their minds and trying to get to the heart of why it is that they've committed their lives um, and made incredible personal sacrifice simply you know, for, for uh, the joy of cooking and for sharing um, you know, their work uh, with others. Well, you started to answer my second question, because I, I don't think it's actually, obviously, you could have done Jiro Dreams of Sushi and moved on to some other subject matter. And I know you've done some other subject matters, too. But clearly, there was something about chefs that made you want to do that more and has led you to continue doing that. So what I was curious to find out more about why you like chefs as a subject matter or why you pursued it as a as a broader series. So um, since I was young, you know, I've always loved to eat. 
Um, my dad um, was the manager of the, uh, is, is the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, and he um, was was always taking me to uh, you know good restaurants. Even when I was young, my mother as well. Um, my mom is a uh, uh, she's a cook. She is a uh, technically a food writer and recipe chef, um, and she's worked on two of the books uh, by Francis Malman, uh, Seven Fires and Malman on Fire. Uh, in addition to having tested recipes for you know numerous magazines and publications over the years, and she has a new book out called Saladish, um, uh, which is a fantastic uh, book about you know all things that are salad and that are salad-ish, and uh, it's been helping me uh, eat healthy. But uh, I've always been kind of the recipe tester, uh, the taste tester for her, and um, so I just have always loved to eat. My parents kind of have instilled that in me, and. Um, Chefs are just great characters. I mean, you really have to sacrifice a great deal to be a chef. You know, it requires an incredible amount of work. You won't make any money for a long time. You may never make money. The risks of opening a restaurant are extraordinary, especially in New York City. Um, you know, the cost of opening a new restaurant, I mean, it's a gamble. And you really have to believe that you're making something and that people are going to come. Like, if you build it, they will come. You have to believe that. And um, things can go wrong, and restaurants close. And so there's a lot of um, kind of built-in drama and risk and sacrifice that these chefs have to go to uh, have to go through, simply to um, follow their follow their craft, follow their art and their vision. And um, you know, they they have to balance their family life with their work life, and that's incredibly difficult. Uh, and and so every chef has a different story. And the other great thing about chefs is that they themselves are inherently storytellers. You know, they tell a story with the food that they're making. And so it's a nice cooperation through our filmmaking to be able to amplify and um, even further illustrate the stories that they're telling in their dishes. That, ma- that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you were just reinforcing why I think Vigilia would have binge watched it. I think those are all the, the factors that, that led her to be so passionate about advocating and talking about and showcasing chefs. Absolutely. So how are the chefs chosen? Because obviously you're not making 40 episodes a season and you're going around the world. So what's the, to the extent that you can share, what, what's the process in um, chefs? Because are they coming from public nominations? Are they coming from your mom and you sit around and brainstorm all of the above? <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the, the chef selection uh, is really a, a process uh, that involves myself uh, my uh, fellow uh, executive producers on the show and um, various friends and researchers and journalists. Um, you know, we, we read quite a bit. Sometimes we get inspiration for stories um, from uh, newspapers or magazines. Sometimes other chefs that have been featured on the show will refer us to chefs um, that they think would make for good episodes. And ultimately, we're trying to find the right combination of chefs per season so that um, there's a nice kind of there should be uh, there should be diversity there should be diversity in style in location um, in heritage um, earlier seasons on the show are very focused on kind of very expensive high end often three star restaurants which are um, you know fascinating and that's in the tradition of Giro but we've also been looking at doing uh, more of a mix of some restaurants are very expensive and exclusive. And some restaurants are um, on the corner of a neighborhood and are just an integral part of that community. Um, And so we we look for uh, variation. 
we want to give a, a, a lovely kind of cross-section of the world of food, of the world of cooking. And um, each season kind of has, a, often will have some sort of theme um, behind it, but it's sort of a loose theme. And uh, we do um, four episodes per season. Our newest season comes out this Thursday. I'm sorry, I, I believe it is actually this Friday. Correction, Friday the 28th is our fifth season. And then we have more coming out next year. And uh, it's probably the hardest thing we have to do is to choose the chefs because there are so many stories, so many worthy stories uh, to be told, and we can't uh, do them all, unfortunately. So, you know, we try our best to tell stories that we think are going to be inspirational and, um, you know, and fun to watch and fun to make. And I was curious, you started to talk about the global nature of it, and I understand the idea for variety and diversity, but obviously as a show that, that or as a filmmaker based in the, in the United States, you obviously can get a huge amount of diversity of food and cultures and regions and things just staying in the state. So why, why was it important to, to you and the team behind the show to, to, to make it a global show rather than just an American regional show? Well, I think that, um, you know, why, why limit ourselves? And we have a fantastic, one of the greatest things about being on Netflix is the incredible global audience that they uh, provide access to. You know, I believe that at, at this time, you know, we may be, uh, Chef's Table may be viewed in 100 countries on Netflix, on the Netflix platform, um, translated in maybe 30-odd different languages. Um, and it's an, it's an incredible opportunity. And so it's a show that's for the world and it's about the world. Well, that's a really neat, neat statement. Of I, I think it's sort of also expanding the idea of food and food programming or food-related programming as being for a global audience and not a tiny niche of just for foodies or food lovers. Totally. I, everybody eats. <laughs> everybody in the world has to eat. And so, um, you know, the interest in food is global. And the uh, it's very important for people to understand how people eat across the world. I think it's all very connected. And I, it's my hope that our show and other shows, you know, especially um, a great inspiration for us has always been the work of Anthony Bourdain um, and someone who makes the world makes the world feel a little bit smaller and like less in Jonathan Gold as well. It's his legacy, too, is to make the world smaller. Let's learn about the entire world. And, um, you know, as uh, as we have more knowledge, more knowledge is spread. And, you know, immigration, you know, hopefully will continue to uh, continue around the world. And then you get to have incredible flavors, uh, no matter what city you're in, you'll be able to taste a little bit of the world in your own backyard. And I think that's, I think that's wonderful. I love like a, a very rich and diverse global food culture. I think it's a very, uh, I think it's something we should all be advocating for. Well, I think it's terrific also to, to advocate for sort of global understanding through inspiration and at all different levels of connectedness. Those are all really vital messages in the way the, the world is feeling today. So uh, uh, applaud the aspiration and, and actually the, the, the accomplishment of that. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process, you know, and, um, you know, I, th I hope it moves in the right direction. Well, it has been, but I also promised viewers up front that we'd go behind the scenes. So I wanted to ask you about some unexpected moments or surprises that have really stayed with you across the making 
of the show? Are there, like, for instance, examples of episodes that turned out completely differently than you expected them to go because the story went a different direction or... Um, I don't know. the The kitchen had a fire the same day. Are there Are there any stories that stand out from you from from now doing so, you know, multiple what four seasons, four and five seasons of it? Well, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll tell one story about um, uh, an episode from last season from our from our pastry season, which um, we we quite enjoyed making. Um, you know, a lot of people on our a, a lot of the crew has a, has a bit of a sweet tooth. And so um, we were we were uh, very happy to make an episode that's all about this uh, season that's all about dessert. And one of our uh, dessert chefs, Jordi Roca, who is um, one of the Roca brothers, which is a trio of brothers um, that have you know what is regarded by many to be one of the greatest restaurants in the world, if not of, uh, in the world, if not of all time, um, El Celercan Roca in uh, Girona in Spain, which is maybe uh, an hour and a half outside of Barcelona. Absolutely wonderful restaurant. Um, the uh, cooking there is astounding, you know, on all levels, um, including dessert. And Jordi Roca has been celebrated as one of the greatest uh, dessert chefs uh, in the world. Uh, his, his work is incredibly creative and, and, and fascinating. And so we are getting ready to um, shoot an episode about him. And we learned that he is having, uh, you know, he has a uh, condition. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to say exactly what it is. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the medical uh, term is, but, you know, he has a problem with the sort of, it, it sounds similar to laryngitis where, you know, he's having a lot of trouble um, speaking, unfortunately. And um, we realized that we rely on our show a lot on voiceover. And so I had a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, you know, is it going to be difficult? You know, because he's barely able to speak over a whisper. But when we got there and we started filming, we just brought the microphones in very tightly and we were able to tell his story with his voice, you know, in a whisper. And it's actually his voice sounded a lot better when we got there, um, but it was still like very much a whisper. But what we learned was that the act of, go- of having to whisper, of having to go through this issue where you can't um, speak the way that you, that you want to or that you're used to, it's required Jordy to become much more kind of observational. And um, he, he listens, like, a lot. And he is very selective with his words. And it requires him to basically be very, like, thoughtful, uh, even more thoughtful with the way that he speaks and, and, and choosing his words carefully and everything. And it's completely changed his outlook on how he works with others and how he cooks and everything. And um, it, it, he's really turned it into quite a, a positive thing for himself um, psychologically. And it's, it's, it reflects in his work. And I thought that was actually kind of an interesting surprise where something that I thought was going to be an obstacle turned out to be something like very interesting and that added a whole other layer to his story. And, um, you know, he's living a, a very, you know, happy life doing uh, fantastic work. And uh, his, his uh, you know, his, his problem, you know, he's found a way to work around it and it's made him, you know, by his own, you know, where it's kind of a, a a, a deeper and, and richer person, which I think is, which I think is wonderful. Um, and so we find these kinds of surprises often, you know, we tend to know, and, and we're lucky at the show not to have uh, a ton of surprises because we, you know, research and we go in and we have conversations and we prepare, but there are also often things like that. There are also things like that that can um, change the way that we look at the story. And, uh, you know, we welcome those opportunities because for a good documentary, you want to come in as prepared as possible but still leave room for the unexpected. And um, that can often lead to some of the best stories. 
Yes, as, as Julia used to say, you prepare, you prepare, you prepare, and then you let go because you and you let the journey take you. But you have to be ultra prepared to handle the 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 ups and downs of of the unexpected once once you're filming. Yeah, I think that's true of, uh, of everything I've ever tried to do is um, if you're going to improvise, know the rules, you know, like know the rules before you break them, you know, prepare as much as you can. And then you're in the position to be able to take advantage of a serendipitous moment. Yes, no, and I have to say, having seen that episode, it's very moving and inspiring, and I've had the great fortune of eating at El, El Cellar Con Roca, although I, I wish I knew the story before I went there. And when you watch the episode, not only is it fascinating because of the approach and the story between the brothers and the restaurant, and it's in kind of, you know, it's not in a giant world capital where it's located. It's definitely a little bit of a pilgrimage uh, destination unless you live in Girona. And, but the other thing about it is you would never know from watching that, and I think that's a power to the craft of storytelling involved in the show, that you you watch the episode thinking, oh, they've gone here because he has this difference in this thing, and you obviously took that um, uh, curveball and made it work and even, I think, enhances the storytelling, as unfortunate it is that he has a less than you know ideal um, speaking voice now, which was not something he chose, but it, it, you would never know that it was a, an obstacle in the way that the episode uh, came out. Yeah, and it was only an obstacle in my mind. You know, I was a little bit worried, and then it, you know, <laughs> it turned out to be fine. And uh, I think a lot, a lot of uh, creative problems often are, are, are mental in the heads of the creator, and that if you just simply lean into the truth and let it unfold, you'll find something um, that's quite beautiful, even if it wasn't what you expected. And uh, it's taken me a long time to, like, find that confidence to be able to just kind of go with it. And it's, it's all thanks to our team. You know, we have such a magnificent um, team of people working with us that you, you just start to feel this trust and, and comfort that allows you to take creative risks and just kind of go with it. Well, I also think leaning into truth is a great mantra for this year. So let's, well, well, well hopefully that's a spreading condition. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to David about more about the upcoming seasons of Chef Table. So stay with us. We'll be right back. We're back in the Foundation's Test Kitchen to find out how well Bob's Red Mill gluten free one to one baking flour holds up to its promise. Gluten-free flour is made from a mixture of rice flours and potato and other starches, which are naturally gluten-free. Bob's Red Mill 1 to 1 is specially formulated as an equivalent replacement for all-purpose baking flour. Having been raised in the southern Midwest, I'm quite the connoisseur of biscuits. Homemade, fluffy buttermilk biscuits are usually a staple on my Thanksgiving table. So I was curious how Bob's Red Mill's recipe for gluten-free buttermilk biscuits would stack up against the traditional wheat flour ones. While it's true they didn't turn out as fluffy or as moist as my usual favorites, they did have a surprisingly rich buttery taste and a lovely golden hue. They even had that slightly dusty exterior, like regular biscuits. If you are gluten intolerant or following a gluten-free diet, they are a satisfying replacement and make for a very nice accompaniment to a light evening meal of soup or chili. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code JULIASKITCHENPOD, all one word, in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill, gluten-free, one-to-one baking flour. Welcome back. We're talking to filmmaker David Gelb about his award-winning Netflix series, Chef's Table. So 
as you, if you've been listening, you already know I'm a huge fan of the show, so I'm dying to know more. So you mentioned before that season five premieres on Friday, and uh, Friday, September 28th, if you're listening to this podcast a lot later. Um, what's in store this season? Well, we have um, two seasons that are coming up, and we had just recently announced um, all eight of our upcoming chefs. We, we've moved the uh, number of chefs per season uh, to four. And um, this has just made it a little bit, you know, it's, it's not an easy show to make, um, especially in post-production. And we found that four has become, we really enjoy doing that on pastry, and it's become kind of a magic number for us. Um, and in our new episode, in our new seasons, we have a certain, um, hold on this one. Okay. So in our new seasons, we have uh, some really very interesting stories. Um, that we're quite excited about. So the first group of four that comes out uh, on Friday is really about stories that we like to think um, are uh, under the radar or or hidden. And um, the the first episode is about uh, Christina Martinez, who um, is actually an undocumented immigrant um, working in uh, South Philly. And she makes this, uh, she has an incredible restaurant called South Philly Barbacoa. And they make the most delicious lamb barbacoa, which is really a kind of a rare, um, when made authentically, you know, it's kind of a rare thing to be able to enjoy in the United States. And her story is, is about, her, uh, about her own journey, um, trying to find a, uh, make a better life for herself and her daughter, um, escaping harrowing uh, conditions um, and, um, you know, domestic abuse in Mexico, uh, fleeing that, escaping the United States and establishing a life um, in the United States, where she brings an incredible amount of value uh, to her community. And now, not only um, is she, uh, you know, a well-known and respected chef, she's also advocating for the, um, I think it's at least 20% of the restaurant workforce in the United States that is undocumented. And, I mean, it's, it's actually shocking because people don't realize that how much of our restaurant system is dependent on, uh, on undocumented workers and, and, and that they are essentially required to live in the shadows, especially now with our current uh, less than tolerant immigration policy here, and that's saying it lightly, um, they're in hiding and they have to go to work every day with that kind of insecurity and fear. And yet we go out to restaurants all the time and just enjoy ourselves. And it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite unfair. And so she's become an advocate for them and trying to give them a voice and is quite brave in her, uh, in her you know, advocacy. And so that, that's a story that we're, that we're very excited about sharing, especially now when um, you know, we have an election coming up that's going to you know, determine the future direction of our country in many ways. Um, and are we going to be, you know, are we, are we going to um, celebrate our heritage of being a, a country of immigrants where people from all over the world bring the richness and cultural heritage um, uh, of their homelands um, here and share in this American dream? Or are we going to just try to, you know, shut it out or, or, or blind our eyes to it? And I, and I think it's terrible um, what's happening. And so I think it's important to, uh, to, to, to send that message about, you know, how vital um, immigration is to the fabric of our country. Um, we also, in kind of a more traditional chef's table style story, we talk about um, Albert uh, Adria who the brother, you know, is best known um, as the brother of Ferran. Uh, the two of them 
created El Bulli, considered to be you know, one of the greatest restaurants of all time, together. And yet, Ferran is the famous one, and Albert is a little bit less known, even though they are both at least equally responsible for the success of El Bulli. And uh, Albert has been kind of, you know, in the shadows to a certain extent, but he's emerged and is opening, you know, has a number of restaurants in Barcelona. And um, his story, it's got an interesting story of, uh, of, of sibling rivalry and sibling cooperation that's led to essentially uh, what we know of today as modern gastronomy. Um, we also have uh, Musa Dajjavarin, who is a uh, chef from Turkey, who um, is sort of a, he's, he's a bit of a researcher or, or scholar of Turkish food. And so he travels all over Turkey, um, learning about, you know, different cuisines, eating in various grandmothers and grandfathers' houses across the country. And, and Turkey, even though it's considered to be one big country, there are very sharp ethnic and regional divides with very mm. different um, styles of cooking. And so his goal is to kind of unify the, not unify, but to find all the different cooking styles and then cook them for people who may have never had them before. And so all of the different regions of Turkey's uh, food are represented in his restaurants, which I think mm. is like very cool because people who live in Turkey often will never know what, you know, somebody in the neighbor, uh, in, in, a, in a town across the country is eating. You know, it's not the same thing where you can just have, you know, you can have Southern food in New York. Um, <laughs> you can't do that in, uh, you can't do that in Turkey. Um, and then we also have a Bo Song Gustava, who is, um, she's a Thai chef. Um, she's trained um, with uh, David Thompson, who is considered one of the best, um, even though he was, uh, he's English, you know, one of the best Thai chefs. And, Bo returned home and is essentially trying to um, reveal true kind of uh, the deep, true Thai cuisine. You know, Thai food has become so globalized that everybody just knows, you know, they know about, they like their pad thai and their pad siu and, uh, you know, their various curries. But that's kind of, it's, it's become a bit generic. You know, you'll notice that Thai, many Thai menus kind of have very similar, you know, uh, menus. And so what she tries to do is goes, goes deep into the farmland um, and similar to what Moose is doing, you know, just kind of discovering the, the beautiful kind of hidden Thai cuisine that's, you know, that's, that's reached very regionalized or localized or kind of hidden away. And she's trying to, you know, bring those techniques back to the forefront and just kind of show that Thai people can be very proud of their food. And that it's incredibly beautiful, and it's not those same, you know, four or five dishes that you see on every Thai takeout menu across the world. And that's that's uh, the next season that comes out on the on this Friday. So you <laughs> go from Mexican, so you go from Mexican food in Philly to Spain to Turkey and pan regional in Turkey, and then back to Thailand, and you've pretty much gone all the way around the world. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and so, what's in store uh, for season I mean, six? Because I heard it has job. kind of a, a journey home theme. I'm sorry, I, I missed the last thing you said. I said for season six, what's in store? Because I heard it has a kind of like journey home theme. Yes, that's right. So you have you have four characters, um, each in, in, in some state of returning home or addressing their own roots, or, or and it could be um, both kind of mental and geographical. So we have uh, Asma Khan, who... Um, uh, was born in India, but became a constitutional lawyer in Great Britain, but just missed the flavors of her home 
um, so much. And uh, she realized that she never really properly learned to cook before she left. So she returns home and essentially um, kind of coaxes her family to reveal to her the secret recipes of, um, you know, of, of their region, of their family. And then she returns to India and opens a restaurant. And adding another layer to it, you know, she is a, a, a second daughter. And in India, um, you know, essentially you, you, what you'd, rather have, you'd rather have a son. You know, this is very traditional kind of old school India. You know, you hope that you'll have a son. And if you have a daughter, fine. And if you have a second daughter, then, you know, that can be kind of, uh, you know, that's a whole other dowry you have to pay. And so second daughters often feel um, kind of less than. And so she is starting a, essentially starting a program to um, advocate for second daughters and to, you know, help them get educations and um, get the kind of attention that they, that they deserve, which I think is kind of a, a beautiful story. Um, we also have uh, Mashama Bailey, who uh, is very, uh, very cool chef. Um, she has a awesome restaurant in Savannah, Georgia, which is it's actually inside of a converted Jim Crow era Greyhound bus station. And she uh, was born in Georgia. Uh, her family moved to New York and she worked at restaurants uh, in New York City, um, you know, essentially training, getting better and better. She also um, trained in, in France. Um, and so she has an incredible, um, you know, just a high end level of skill. Um, and uh, appreciation of, of produce and, and global uh, food technique. And then she returns to Georgia, Georgia to open this restaurant and um, just gets a chance to kind of revisit the place of her birth with the eyes of the world, you know, with her, with her own kind of global perspective um, and New York hooking perspective. And it's really a, a beautiful story. She's also our first um, African-American chef on the show. And um, she... When she was training in France, she came across the writings of uh, Edna Lewis, who was a brilliant African-American chef who, um, you know, was able to kind of dig in deep into the traditions of, uh, you know, the American, uh, you know, essentially African-American cooking. And um, she's been using that as an inspiration, along with just like the local cuisine and vibe of Georgia. And then, um, you know, what she's learned cooking for some of the best chefs in New York City. Um, we also have another take on Southern cuisine with Sean Brock who um, is, you know, probably our most famous chef in that second grouping of chefs. You know, you've seen him on TV. He's been on Bourdain a bunch of times. Um, it's a fantastic chef with, like, a really, um, again, very high-end um, technique, um, a lot of Japanese influence as well, but he cooks his southern food with real respect for the originals. And, you know, he's always fascinated with, um, you know, with, with, with grandma's recipes and, you know, old, like, pickling and old books and things. So he's sort of like a culinary detective in a way, kind of going through the attics and basements of the South and trying to glean all the knowledge that he can. But at the same time, he, you know, he's been, he's, uh, he has multiple, uh, he, he's opened multiple restaurants. He has, um, you know, he's incredibly busy. Uh, and, you know, the, the work that goes into doing a restaurant is relentless. You know, as we talked about earlier, the risk and the, and the, and the tension and that there is actually a, a real problem in the restaurant industry with um, substance abuse as, as mm. a way of coping with the, with the incredible pressures. And, you know, Sean Brock has kind of been dealing with that kind of demon um, for a long time to the point where it was just became unsustainable. He dealt with his feelings at the same time with another health problem that was 
uh, may or may not have been related to um, his drinking, but you know, was really he almost like completely lost his sight. And uh, it's a real story about you know, like you have to you have to address the the the, um, the demons and like the emotional you know wounds within in order to survive. And mm-hmm. you know, he really hit a wall, and he had to really just dig deep within himself. Um, to find the will to, you know, to, to continue and to make himself healthy, not just for himself, but for his family and for his, you know, his family of, uh, of restaurants and, and staff and everything. And since um, the episode shot, he's actually left those restaurants and has a new project in Nashville um, that he's developing right now, um, which I think is going to be awesome. And I think he's, a, he's really a phenomenal chef. And then... Um, Michelle Bailey. We talked about, oh, yes, we talked about Dario Ciccini. So Dario is this awesome uh, butcher in Panzano, and he's maybe one of the single most entertaining people that I've ever filmed. Because mm. his, not only, it's not just a butcher shop, it's like a stage. You know, he stands behind um, the butcher counter on this kind of platform. He's blasting rock and roll music or opera, or he's reciting Dante. Um, and first, so the first thing you do when you eat there is you, 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 go, to his, uh, you go to the butcher shop, you have some, you know, pate or little like bites or like pork fat or, or, or whatever and some wine. You sit down and then you all sit down at the tables and the meat just starts coming out. And then Dario will come out and just start like blasting uh, music on this little bugle trumpet thing. And then he'll shout to beef or not to beef or like <laughs> carne diem. He has these English uh, uh, beef catchphrases. And what you'll get to uh, enjoy is the most delicious uh, bistecca fiorentina um, that you've ever had, like the most incredible cuts of beef. At the same time, he also serves all the other parts of the cow. And the story behind that is that he grew up wanting to be a veterinarian. He loves animals. Even though his family was into, had a butcher shop, he was obsessed with, uh, you know, he was obsessed with animals and wanted to be a vet. And um, when his parents both suddenly died, he had no choice but to come home and to take over the butcher business. But in order to do that, he kind of came up with an ethical system of making sure that the cows, when they're alive, they have a good life. Um, they're not in little, like, cages or stalls. Um, and that they, um, when you take the life of a cow, that you're going to appreciate and eat every single part of that cow. And so he came up with a cuisine that he serves in um, one of his restaurants where you will eat every single part of the cow in all different forms. And he's really made it quite delicious. Um, so in a combination of bombast and um, kind of you'll, you'll, you'll get uh, a very entertaining uh, character combining bombast with very thoughtful, um, ethical uh, food sourcing. And it's really quite a beautiful story about a guy who just never wanted to kill a cow who is now the most famous butcher in the world. Yeah, I was going to say he's quite a cult figure. I've read articles about him, and it, it seems like also like once people meet him and see his whole process and eat his food or his his meat in particular, he he it just totally captivates you. It's impossible not to fall in love with him. I mean, he is just absolutely uh, charming and just like the, the sweetest guy. Even though you know he's got two butcher knives and blood all over his apron, um, you never wanted to hug him. <laughs> you never not wanted to hug him, rather. <laughs> He's just incredibly generous and sweet and uh, knife-wielding. Well, those sound like an amazing set of inspiring stories. So that is a lot to look forward to. And do you know yet, so season uh, season five starts on Friday, September 28th. And then we also, 
you've got the next four episodes of season six, and they're, they do they launch sometime in in twenty nineteen. In 2019, um, we uh, don't have a specific date to reveal just yet. We will stay tuned. So I was curious with all of that, from the time you started with season one until the, these later two seasons, has your approach to the way the show's done and how you profile the chef changed? Or was it always you, you let each chef's story speak for itself and so there's not really need for evolution? Um, no, I mean, I think that w- what's changed is um, just the entire crew has gotten, you know, just so much better over time. And that's one of the things that I marvel about, you know, being, um, you know, the creator of the show is just seeing, you know, w- when I made Zero Dreams of Sushi, I had, it was a crew of maybe three or four people, tops, you know, from production to post. It was a very small team. And I was kind of micromanaging everything. And um, when it came to making season one of Chef's Table, I really had to learn to rely on, you know, rely on my collaborators. You know, I, I managed to bring on two you know, excellent um, executive producers. One, um, Andrew Freed, who has a, a real background in television and helped me adapt the filmmaking, um, you know, the, the long-form, you know, documentary filmmaking process, which is usually at least a year to make a single documentary film, if not many more years. Um, and so he, he was able to really help me um, bring on the team that would make it possible to do this in a faster and more efficient way. And then Brian McGinn, who introduced me to a whole world of incredible characters um, that I never would have known about or or found on my own. And and Brian really leads um, our chef selection um, along with uh, Andrew and myself. Um, And so I would say that what's changed is that, you know, we have, so we have this team that came on in season one. We have many of the same people. In fact, most of, this, uh, of the season one production and post teams have stayed on to the present. And just watching them just take ownership of this show and bring it to incredibly new levels to the point where I will go into screenings and I'll just be watching what um, one of our teams has done. Our, our directors have, uh, since, since season one, have been in, uh, also improving incredibly, as well as bringing on new directors who have been working with our experienced team and then, um, you know, so we kind of always have a mix of veterans and some fresh faces that bring new ideas and new techniques to the show. And so I, I'm always incredibly impressed by how much better the work is getting. And, um, you know, when I go back and watch season one, you know, we're proud of it, but we think about, we all, <laughs> all that we see are like, oh, well, we could have done that better if we knew about this technique or did this. And so um, it's just fun to like improve. And I think that that's something that we also picked up from, um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, was this idea that Jiro Ono, you know, every day he would do the same thing or a similar thing, but looking for that one step of improvement. And, you know, we're making, although we have different characters every season, you know, we're still taking, telling these single character stories, kind of doing a, a similar format with different characters, but just always looking for that one way to get like a little bit better, to tell the story a little bit more concisely, a little bit more clearly, a little bit more emotionally you know, with the goal of just like bringing you into the minds of these chefs for, you know, for the 45 minutes or, or an hour that we have with you. And, uh, I, I would say that, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm just floored by the, the work that I'm seeing. And I really am excited for people to see what we come out with, uh, on September 28th. 
Well, certainly what ends up on film in these episodes, it, it, it makes it, I'm glad you're describing all of that because it makes it look easy when it, when it is actually much more difficult than what people think. And I'm also struck by what you were saying about the learning process and the evolution so echoes what many people, but including Julia and, and her later professor, uh, producer Jeff Drummond used to say that very similar things about, just like you said, the more you do it, the more you learn to do it better. And a lot of it is more about um, how arduous it is on you as the the makers, not necessarily how good or bad the end product is. Mm. Yeah, and but, you know when you have a great team, um, it, it, it be, like what seemed like really difficult hard work in season one has become a lot more just pleasant and easier as we built as as we built our confidence. And um, you know we're grateful that we've had the chance to keep on making them because it was a, a risky show. Um, you know Netflix was the only network that would hear our pitch. It was the first uh, food show that didn't have a host. And that, you know, the, the, the burden is really on the chefs to tell their story and then on our editors and story producers to put that together, you know, in a, in a um, you know, to take, take a whole life and condense it to an hour. And, uh, you know, they, they've, done some, they've done some really great work. Well, there is no reward without the risks. So that is, uh, we appreciate the, the candor of going behind the scenes of how um, it's put together. Of course. Okay, after the break, Dave is going to share his own Julia moment. We're looking forward to that. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, David, what's your Julia moment? Okay, so it's a, it's a little interesting. So I'm, I'm maybe five years old. Um, my parents have rented a, a cute little house in, uh, in Chappaquiddick. Um, I'm learning to read. I have a dream. This is my mother is helping me remember this. I was, I was just uh, conferring with her to, to confirm some of the details. But according to her, I woke up in the morning and I said, I had a dream that we made uh, fruit rolls. And my mom says, what's a fruit roll? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, got, it's, it's a pastry, but it's made of fruit. And... Um, you know, I had just been learning, uh, as I said, I would just been learning to read and I learned how to spell my name and there's an I in my name. And I loved how there was a dot. There's an, it's, a, it's a straight line with a dot and I love the I. So I said, it's in the shape of an I. And so <laughs> my mother goes and gets um, her, uh, her book, uh, the, uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child. And she, so we, she started making the, uh, the pot brise, the, the pie crust. And we just started shaping it in these little eyes, you know, with a little dot and a line and putting um, some uh, lovely uh, preserves and, and, and fruits on top of them and just kind of uh, experimenting with that. 
And I thought I was like a little culinary genius. Like I was the first person to ever make like a tiny little, <laughs> a tiny little fruit tart. But uh, my mom was uh, really encouraged me and it, you know, became like my little recipe and we made it for uh, the kids at school and, and, and at camp. And, uh, you know, it's just like a fun little, uh, a fun little thing. And, um, you know, I guess that's my Julia Child story because uh, it was in that book. And my mom, I remember my mom was like showing me the book and it was, the, you know, the mastery uh, of French cooking. And I just thought it was so cool. And uh, that's how I became uh, acclimated with the great Julia Child. Well, no, that's a great one and definitely not one that uh, compares to any that I've heard. And I think you might have a whole um, side business or maybe you could confer with Christina Tosi, the pastry chef, and you could come up with like little um, sandwiches in your, you know, you could spell out your name and fruit rolls and you could have all 26 letters. Well, okay. Well, something to do when, when chef's table has run its course, you know, after about 40 seasons. Yeah, a, a quiet, uh, a quiet life of baking and retirement. I think that's uh, that sounds pretty nice. That does well. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it, it was it was awesome. I really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise, and thanks to everyone for listening. Let us know if you're a chef's table fan or which ep- episode has inspired you the most. Send us an email or even a voicemail to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. This series is Chef's Table on Netflix, created by David Gelb. As we talked about, Season 5 premieres globally on the streaming service on September 28th, and watch out for Season 6 in 2019. If you want to follow David on social media, his handle is at this is David Gelb, G-E-L-B, on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow Chef's Table on Instagram and Facebook. Just search at Chef's Table Netflix, all one word. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, and our sound engineer, Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners discover the show. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.